Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homey. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Today's topic is something that I am extremely passionate about. Through my work with the Business Creators Institute, and also is expressed in several of the sections and chapters of my book, Groundhog Day is an Event, Not a Business Strategy, which I, of course, encourage you to go pick up a copy of, we deal a lot with how to make teams function more effectively, particularly virtual teams, particularly when we have asynchronous activity happening. And what I mean by asynchronous is people are they're not all in the same time zone. You have a lot of diversity, not only with all the check marks you normally think of in your head when you hear the word diversity, but just the fact that you're dealing with different people with very unique personalities. And the more you can set those personalities free, the more you can put them to work for your organization. In order to achieve this, you must build trust. And then there's also a case where you may need to take the trust away, which we will delve into in some detail. But this is all about building that trust so that hopefully you don't have to take it away at all. To share with us today priceless insights on this topic, we have somebody I've wanted to have on this show for a long time now, and I'm so happy that we were able to coordinate schedules and get him to hang out with us at Business Creators Radio for a few minutes. His name is Benjamin Preston. Let me tell you about him. He's an award-winning business consultant and career strategist. He consults with businesses to support initiatives in marketing, business strategy, operations, employee development, and human resources. He also offers one-on-one coaching for young professionals to uncover their unique strengths and passions for an exciting career. He is the author of Harness Your Butterflies, The Young Professional's Metamorphosis to an Exciting Career, and has been featured on outlets such as Ditch the Job, The Offer, Human Capital Innovations, and Certifiably Unemployable. These are four stops I may have to make in my own journey for his strategic career advice. Obviously, his website's pretty easy to find. It's benjaminpreston.com, www.benjaminpreston.com. And to you, Benjamin Preston, come on in. The weather's fine. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, har, har, har. So <laughs> what we like to do here on we have a lot to discuss, and you have a lot of great points you want to cover with us. But before we do that, let's take a step back. I read off your bio. It's so impressive that I'm not even sure I'm worthy to be here, and this is my show. Tell us a little bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making that difference for your community, market, and audience. Yeah, I think I need to give a raise to whoever wrote that bio. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, but my, my career development journey has been all over the place and it's kind of interesting. Like the more that I work with young professionals, they're like, I really need advice on X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, been there, done that. 
Um, I feel like I took the long way around. I, I started my career off uh, in communications, working for like a billion dollar, you know, advertising conglomerate company. Thought it was really interesting, got a lot of really cool insights, got to work with some cool clients, but I felt like it was more of a logical choice than it was an emotional choice. And I'll jump into kind of my theory on that too, in terms of what, what it applies to business. But I went from there to a startup, felt like I wanted to make more of an impact, um, moved from that startup to another company, a Native American economic development company, where we go around the US and kind of build up economies on reservations. And from there, I started my own business. I started my own nonprofit. And I felt like working for myself was a lot more freeing. I felt like I could get kind of more out of it. Um, but yeah, I, I took the long way around to entrepreneurship. I always joke with my family, like everyone in my family loves startups and being kind of their own boss. I'm like, yeah, it took me a while to get there, but I'm, I'm here now. So that's great. And you know, myself, I, when I went to college, I was a political science major with uh, a, his, a minor in Middle East studies because I became interested in the topic. And then between those, that major and that minor, I also became an on-paper history minor because just through that major and that minor, I took everything mm -hmm. I needed to fulfill a history minor. So I literally, all I had to do is sign the paper. Now I'm a history minor. Then I got a job because my goal of going to law school got throttled after I attended a seminar taught by one of the adjunct professors at Penn State. He was a corporate attorney of one of those high-powered types. He was charismatic. He was mesmerizing. He drew you in. He took you by the hand and walked you down an exciting story path about the glories, the sufferings, and the triumphs of working in law. I was hooked. And at the end of those three hours, there was no way in hell I was going to be a lawyer. <laughs> Uh, not because I put it down. We, uh, I have great friends who are attorneys. We've had attorneys on Business Creators Radio Show. I've had clients who are attorneys, but that particular lifestyle is just not for me. So I had a couple of jobs, one of which was so bad that I actually celebrate the day that I was asked to resign as my second birthday, which I write about in another book, Journeys to Success in Millennial Edition. So I went to get my MBA in Human Resource Management from Duquesne University. My goal was actually to become a Fortune 100 training and development director. Went through the interview process, got offers, turned them all down because the entrepreneurial bug had bitten me. So in the meantime, I'm building a, a little side gig at the same time I'm getting promoted, the day job I've been holding down for three years, which actually was a pretty good job. And in 2005, I made the leap into full-term entrepreneurship. In my journey, took me through owning a web development firm, which happened because I found out there were a lot of people who would throw money at me to build websites. Now, I'm not a web designer. I cannot draw a roller with a straight line. I can't even get that analogy right. Uh, then I moved into website conversions and we did product launches. And now my primary work is to two companies, the Business Creators Institute, which does consulting of in terms of organizational development, team building, and some marketing strategies for small businesses. And I have the REACH system, which works with entrepreneurial ventures to launch their business building podcasts. So yeah, my journey has had a few curves too. And I think that's the nature of entrepreneurship. That being said, yes, I do feel like I'm using my MBA. I feel it every day. Uh, just because I didn't become a TND director doesn't mean that uh, I'm feeling like I got ripped off when I make that student loan payment every month. So I'm feeling good. But 
just wanted to share that with our listeners and also with you, Benjamin, so that you can see that's actually a fairly normal thing to have an interesting trajectory. So let's yeah. get into it. What, I was gonna say what I, I want to make a comment on that first, though, because I think what I love what I love about hearing about your story, and I know my experience similarly, is everybody goes out of college thinking they need to follow some sort of script or some sort of like to-do list. And then they kind of, you know, some way along the way, you're kind of like, you know what, I'm just going to do my own thing. And you become a lot more satisfied that way. And yeah. a lot of times more successful. So, you know, I just think that's interesting that we both had very similar journeys in that way. What's been fortunate for me up until now is that I don't get any cards on Father's Day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I love kids. I expect to have a family at some point. Uh, at the same time, I also look at the blessing and everything. The fact that that hasn't quite happened for me yet has also created opportunities for me. And it'll also create opportunities for my future children because I'll be a different kind of dad that brings a different level of experience, knowledge, wisdom, and financial security to the table. So I'm lo really looking forward to that when it happens at the right time. But no regrets. So let's get into this whole thing because we have a lot to discuss here. Why is it, let's begin by defining some of our issues. Why is it that companies, both large and small, have so much trouble retaining talented employees? There's, I, okay, so this is my opinion. I think there's a lot of what, what large companies would say data points that, that kind of are the reason that employees leave. My biggest thing is because being employed is a logical and an emotional journey. So from the logical standpoint, um, you need to have a paycheck, you need to have kind of the stability factor, but a lot of companies don't hit on the emotional components of it. And so when people first start in their jobs, it might be something they're very excited about, um, but the company doesn't facilitate kind of growth in a way that's sustainable for an employee. So they might look, an employee, an employee might show up to the job work on things for a while, bring up to their manager that they want to grow and the company does nothing about it. So right. I think there's the way that we look at it, the way that we look at our careers and the way that we look at managing teams isn't just from the, oh, I need to give you a pay raise. I need to kind of figure out like what your mobility track is. It's also leveraging their strengths, leveraging the things that are inspiring them um, and not just looking at it from an organizational standpoint. So that's kind of the biggest thing for me is when I work with you know, young professionals or just professionals in general, a lot of the reasons that they leave or the, a lot of the reasons that they want to leave is because they aren't feeling satisfied or they're not feeling that emotional connection to their organization for very, very simple reasons. Yeah. And we hear a lot about millennials and how lazy they are and these Gen Z workers with all their demands and everything else. And I have come to look at it way differently. I am Gen X myself. Uh, you just have to go a couple years younger than me and we start getting into millennial territory. I've never met a lazy millennial. Yeah, in, fact, I, in fact, they're some of the most driven, dedicated, passionate people who contribute the most to their workplaces and are visionary, dynamic leaders of their entrepreneurial ventures. And the Gen Z workers show a lot of positives. So tell us about, from your perspective, what they're looking for in their roles. Because I think that when we classify them as, quote unquote, lazy, unfocused, demanding, we are really missing the plot. Right. Well, and the thing is, it's it's 2021. And people have options. They're, like When you talk about substitutions in terms of what, how an employee or how a person, an individual can make money today, they don't need to work for an organization. So when you're thinking about, you know, oh, my employee is lazy, this, this, you know, kind of the, the main talking points that you hear about millennials, 
the real, at least to me, the real core of it is millennials don't want to work hard at things that they don't like. And I think because they don't need to, because there's so many options and like, you know, we love the internet. It's if somebody doesn't like doing, you know, one half of their tasks, not to say that everyone should just give up and not do the things that, you know, they don't want to do. But when you're working, when you're managing a team, a lot of times you have the ability to shift around their responsibilities so that people are working on at least 70% of the stuff that really gets them excited to wake up in the morning. And I think that's where people flip the switch. Cause I even have conversations with this, like with my grandpa, he, he laid carpet his entire life. Yeah. He hated it. But now I have conversations with him where I'm like, no, I genuinely like doing what I'm doing. And he's like shocked by that. And I'm like, that's just the way the world is, is moving is people are gravitating toward the things that get them excited because they can and because they can make a profit from it. And I think a lot of people that manage teams don't understand. They look at it from a very linear standpoint of this is your job. I'm paying you to do it versus this is your job. Let me help you figure out how we can make this more exciting or make you be more driven so that instead of working 40 hours, you're working 60 hours voluntarily because this is stuff that you love to do. That's the thing. You tap into the brilliance and the passion, and not only are they are they not trying to finagle out of their way out of a four hour forty hour work week, you may actually end up counseling them. They need to shut it down every once in a while. So uh, you just got to look at it the right way. And I have a metaphor and an example that I think build upon that. The metaphor is. I don't know if you believe in reincarnation. Some people do. Some people don't. Candidly, I do believe in reincarnation. That being said, I don't know what I was in my past life, although I've done uh, meditation exercises and worked with hypnotherapists, and I have clues uh, that tell me how I probably died in my past life. But I don't have a clue where I'm going next. The point I, the reason I bring this up is, even if you believe in reincarnation, you only get to do this life one time. So you might as well live it. Now, for an example, that uh, job I mentioned that uh, was not so great, it was working for a temporary staffing firm. And this was 20 years ago, around the turn of the millennium. My performance in that job was, it seemed like the primary metric was them using their tracking system to figure out how much outgoing phone time I had. Like everything else would come from how much time I spent making calls outbound. I eventually figured out how to cheat that because I would just call my buddies and have short phone calls with them. And uh, they praised me because my phone time was going up, which shows how out of the loop they were. But I could go on and on about that. But here's the point I really want to make for our purposes. My role was to find people who would be available on short notice to serve in temporary roles for a, in a variety of industries. And I figured out that I could go to this thing called the internet and that job boards and just invite them to come in for interviews. So I could look at their qualifications. I could look at their posted resumes and I could say, oh, this, this one looks like he would be great for this client where we're trying to put positions in right now Let's see if I can get him in tomorrow. If he's actually unemployed, maybe we can get him right to work. Uh, so next thing you know, my calendar starts filling up and then they find out I'm using the internet and they were horrified because somehow, <laughs> because somehow me using a technology where I could just line up interviews was inferior to calling people. Okay, first, uh, I, I'm, I'm so introverted, I make Susan Kane look like a club chick. And uh, I, you know, so being on the phone is torture to me to begin with, number one. Number two, 
it, it was just the amazement of wait and, and this was coming from one of their partners that owned it said wait you, you you're sketching interviews from people you found on the internet that like they couldn't believe that was possible yeah because they themselves were actually and again i don't fault them for it i i that's not really a criticism although i'm expressing it from the point of the frustration i felt at the time as a 23 year old who barely knew anything in the world either so i didn't really know how to per so you know in fairness i didn't really know how to communicate in that situation either it's you know learning we gain over the years but the issue was quite simply that firm came a virgin age in the 1980s when the idea of recruiting people by telephone was actually hot so with that being said, that's what they knew and that's what they hung their success on. And they did have a lot of success building their company and their reputation in that industry. I could not see that at the time. What we saw was a conflict. So they, I, I know they looked at me as somebody who was clueless, disorganized, couldn't give a shit about the company's mission and vision and all kinds of other profane things that their founder said to me when he demanded I resign. But uh the fact is, uh, you know, it's just generational things. And I think that contributes a lot to employee dissatisfaction and the employer's dissatisfaction with the employee is just that failure to connect or that not having a frame of reference to know where to begin the conversation on how to merge the brilliances and the passions to create something that allows everybody to shine according to the brightness of their own bulb. Mm -hmm. And that's a classic management fault too. Like I, I just worked with an organization. They wanted to roll out um, a new marketing program. And I, you know, told them, Hey, really think about investing in a lot of automation tools. And they're like, well, we, you know, we've heard of automation. We don't really need it. We're just going to have somebody send out these emails, you know, every Monday. And I'm like, that is the biggest waste of time. I think I have ever heard because yeah. you don't need to, you can just draft everything and put it in as automation. But the thing that's interesting is like, typically like managers will look at things and I, I mean, it sounds like this was kind of your, I mean, I've had similar experiences to that as well, where people, you know, managers will say, this is how it's done. This is how it's always been done. This is how we're going to continue to do it. And it's like, this is my job. Let me own my job, you know? Um, and right. it just, it, it erodes kind of the, cause I feel like the thing that's really fun about working, I mean, I hate calling it working cause it makes it sound like it, you have to put in a ton of effort, but I, the thing that I love about working is like, it's such a creation process. It's such a, it's a process of, of trial and error, kind of learning the things that you want to learn and applying the things that you want to apply. And if you have a manager or a leader in an organization that's telling you, you know, need, you need to do things my way or the highway, it's like, I will go find another job. <laughs> there's yeah. no shortage of jobs. I think there's a, I think there's a balance between having a process and understanding how, following that process can make your company more lean and more agile versus here's another analogy for you. And then there's a really interesting question you wanted me to ask you, which we'll get to. Uh, I tell this so many times, you might've even heard it if you've been spying on my podcast. Uh, there's this man who noticed that his wife, before she put a roast in the pan, always cut, cut off the ends of the roast. He asked her, honey, why do you cut off the ends of the roast before you put it in the pan? She said, eh, that's how my mother always did it. And she said that it makes the roast more juicy, more tender, and just overall a better way to cook it. Well, next weekend they're over his mother-in-law's place. So he gets to ask the mom and the mom tells him substantially the same thing. My mother told me that you cut off the ends of the roast. It makes it more tender, more juicy, and more delicious. Well, funny thing. 
his grandmother-in-law, 93 years old, still full of vim and vinegar, saw her at Thanksgiving. And he said, grandma-in-law, my, my wife, my mother-in-law, your daughter and your granddaughter all say that you told them that when you cut off the ends of the roast before you put it in the pan, it makes it more tender, more delicious, and more juicy. And grandmother-in-law said, ah, pfft. ah, they're full of it. The reason we cut off the ends is because during the Great Depression, we couldn't afford a bigger pan. It's the only way we could cook the thing. The point, the point being is many rules and processes we have are permanent overreactions to temporary blips on the radar. And they're often implemented without review processes, without continuous improvement plans, and without sunset clauses, which means we may be doing something the way it's always been done, and it may have only been relevant for a few minutes even when it was implemented, but yet we keep doing it because somebody says that's the way it's always been done. So when I hear that, I say, yeah, you've always been doing it that way. And somehow, despite that, you're still in business. No, I love that story. I think, and I think it's true with a lot of how organizational cultures work. Like there's, there was that story, um, like that's that experiment where it was like, you know, monkeys in a cage and they try to go for the bananas. And every time they go for a banana, they got sprayed with water. And then they, you know, the, they started swapping in new monkeys. And then eventually over time, the monkeys stopped going altogether. And then even as they started adding new monkeys, None of the monkeys went for the bananas because nobody else was going for the bananas because they'd been con conditioned not to do that. And it's just yeah. like the way that people kind of adapt to that, that level of conformity is, is really interesting to me. But yeah, I, lo I love that story. Yeah. Well, here's the next question. And I, when I first read this, I thought it was pretty brotastic <laughs> because of the phrase that's in it. And I think you know what I'm about to ask you. So Benjamin, what is strength-based training? And I immediately saw you lifting weights when I saw that phrase. What is strength-based training and how can companies implement it from the start of a new employee's career? Yes, so it's as much as I advocate for physical strength, this is more uh, your, your strengths in your career. So if you think of the formal, kind of the formal assessments like Clifton or DISCs, or even if you kind of do your own inventory of the things that you're good at, what I've noticed is a lot of the organizations that I work with, we do very minimal shifting. First, we do the strengths assessment. So figuring out what your teams are good at and then connecting those strengths to jobs as if it were a puzzle. So if you think of like all of the things that need to get done, if you have a team of three, let's say three to five people, there might be, somebody might be really, really strategic. Somebody might be really creative. Somebody might be uh, really organized. But you, there's a way that you can figure out the workflows and re, kind of redo the way that your department structures and leverage people's strengths because the things that people are good at, their strengths, the more that you can kind of nurture those or get people to utilize those more, the end products will always be better. Just inherently, they will always be better. But also your teams get a lot more fulfillment and they get a lot more excited about their roles, which then inspires a lot more creativity and innovation in your teams. So the idea of sort of strength-based uh, working with your team or an individual, let's say on your team, helping them figure out what are they good at and how can they apply those strengths to their current role? Because a lot of times they can take those strengths and apply them directly. You'll see an immediate improvement in terms of product productivity, satisfaction, um, passion and purpose. Like we were talking about how millennials get very excited and very purposeful with their work. If you, can, if you can tie what someone is doing back to their strengths, they will immediately feel 
engaged and excited and passionate to come to work. And so that's kind of the, there's a lot of different ways that you can do that for kind of in a formal setting, um, but figuring out kind of how to, to tackle your, your team's strengths and then figuring out kind of the workflows and processes to get them to use their strengths more um, on the projects that you're currently working on. I found that a lot of that happens, especially when we're dealing with asynchronous virtual teams. Because again, you're dealing with folks whose personalities are going to come through a lot more and are used to working more independently to begin with. So it takes a process to do that. And I found in my experience, you start with, well, a process and see how they react to it. So let's say you have uh, a way, I'm going to use an example from one of my own clients, how they get a webinar from booking the guests to getting the landing page set up to getting the email set up to promoting it to hosting it to getting the replay up. I designed a 22 point process that assigned different members of the team to different roles and created dependencies where one person could not move forward without the previous. That was all well and good. And I quickly discovered that that worked approximately 80% effectively, but I kept running into the same stumbling blocks on the other 20%, which held the whole thing up. And it had to do with the variances in the work styles between myself and the company owner. So in that case, I recognized that the value of making this work was to create two different ways that the company owner could contribute their part. It was a little different from the process, but still tied into the process so that for everybody else, it just cascaded the way it normally would. So what actually ended up happening is I create a 23-step process for setting up promulgating and hosting and replaying a webinar that involved another person to assist the company owner in collating the material into a format the rest of the team could use. So it was just a matter of having that recognition of seeing people's frustrations and rather than calling them lazy or unfocused or uncooperative, finding out what it was that really motivated them and what about their work style made the most productive and how do we make that gel with what we're trying to accomplish because the end goal was a successful webinar yeah and that's a good that's a really good example of how kind of agile processes work too yeah yeah i mean i there have been some companies that i work with where instead of they they don't have that agile or let's say like a specific manager doesn't have that agile approach and so it turns into oh this person just is lazy and they don't want to work on this or oh this person just really isn't as smart as i thought they were because they can't figure this out and i'm like Okay, so instead of making it personal, let's figure out kind of what you did where it was, how can we adjust this process to work with the way that people, the way that people work, as opposed to just thinking about it in a very like linear, unchanging, rigid fashion. Yeah. Yeah. So my approach is start with the rigid, allow the resistance to happen, and then address the resistance. Yeah, which is perfect. Yeah the, same, yeah, the same way if you were designing a car, for instance, and then you try and drive it, and you find out that something is causing it to not go very fast. Well, first, you have to build the car and then attempt to drive it to find out what's going on. Then you can look into the drivetrain, you can look at how the wheels are positioned, or the transmission, or whatever it is that's causing it to drag, and just fix that part. And now the car is going to work like it's supposed to, rather than trying to anticipate every single little thing that could possibly go right or wrong before you even draw what the bumper is supposed to look like, because otherwise you will never have a car. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's that's one of the frameworks that I work with is the change management curve where it's like yeah. any change that you start, it always just immediately goes down until you make the necessary adjustments. And then all of a sudden it, it you know, eventually gets back up past the point of where you were originally and exceeds your expectations. But yeah, that's I love that's a perfect example. Yeah, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. So now what we want to do is we want to rewind a step. And for our listeners who are thinking, this is a little bit more of a linear interview than we're used to. Let me just share with you that the points that Benjamin shared with me in the green room that he wanted to cover are just so good that I'm giving you effect a checklist before we get to the checklist part. So here's the next question. And let's take a step back from the start of the new employee's career. Let's go to the job listing for a moment. So how can you throw out a job listing when you need to fill a specific role within a company that ties into these goals that we're discussing? So yeah, so putting to, are you talking, you're saying putting together a JD for a job when you want to kind of develop a career or develop an employee once they get in? Well, well basically how you throw out a job listing. So, uh, uh, so basically, I guess, creating the job listing or maybe discarding the job listing. I'm not, actually not sure what you meant by that. So go ahead and answer it however makes you feel good. Yeah, well, I think, I think the thing that um, that's interesting with JDs is a lot of times organizations will put out an organ or they'll put out... Um, a job description and as as the years progress every jd kind of becomes standard but then they add on 10 percent every single year so if you look at jds now they're like four pages long versus when you looked at them previously they were kind of more fluid more people could you could kind of interpret it the way that you want but now companies are becoming very prescriptive with the way that they assign job descriptions and what happens is, so as a manager, you're saying, I need all of these 30 qualifications. And then you interview and you find, let's say two people, those people get in your, let's say you hire one of them. They are at your company for six months and then they realize, okay, there's no flexibility with the jobs that I have, even though I'm learning, especially at an early career stage, they're not really sure what they wanna work on or they know that they like this, but they wanna dabble in other things. I So when I talk to organizations about drafting job descriptions, making them a little bit more um, open or a little bit more fluid so that you're not being as rigid or you're not constantly adding, you know, 10 more things that you need this person to do because the perfect person, the person that you in your head is going to fit all 30 of those qualifications probably isn't applying for that role because they already work for a large organization somewhere else. (laughs) And they probably are getting paid really, really well. So I think that's kind of one of the things that that from a job description standpoint, I've, I've seen a trend in that is the size of the JDs grow and the qualities of the people applying for those roles, they get into the role and they realize that they're really unhappy and then they leave. So they're there for less than a year anyway. But yeah, that's, that's probably one of the things with the job descriptions. My intellectual junk food is re- reading those web pages that web developers put up for search engine purposes where they basically collate funny Reddit stories. So there's a thread that goes around, and I see this posted on various websites of some of the ridiculous things that happen with job descriptions, one of which is, uh, and I think it's just driven by people who put in numbers because they want to raise the perceived value of the candidate. So they'll put out an entry-level position that requires 10 years of experience. Okay, that, that's, that's a common thing. And then you also see these stories, and I've seen more than one, where it'll be a tech-type job, where the person is required to understand a certain programming language or a certain process, and they'll say, 
you need to have seven years experience in the Preston code. And so next thing you know, uh, Benjamin Preston goes on Twitter and says, yes, I'm not qualified for your position because I only invented that code four years ago. And you say I need seven years experience in it. That was actually, so that's, it's funny that you bring that up. That was exactly that, that specific example. When I worked at the, the startup that I worked at for, I was yeah. uh, marketing, heading up a marketing department and we were trying to hire somebody and the founder said they need to have X amount of exper experience in this software. And for me, I'm like, I don't know what that software is. Let's just put the JD out. And I think it was like five years experience. And the recruiter came back to me and she was like, this has only been around for two years. You're not going to find somebody that has five years of experience with, you know, it was like a certain Java code or something. I was like, oh yeah. my God. Yeah, that, it, yeah it's, it's just hilarious how that happens sometimes. And I think you know, when you mentioned the 10% that seems to get added every year or every go round, that they just start adding all these additional things to make the job listing seem more profound or to attempt to get only the ideal candidate who checks off all the boxes to even bother applying. And I can tell you that having been in business for 25 years now, I agree with you. I don't think there is a such thing as the person who will check off every single box. Well, and the other thing is like, would you want that person to work at your company anyway? Like, even if like, just go, go with this kind of idea. If you found the exact perfect person that fit every speck of what you were looking for, you hired them tomorrow, they would be so bored because you wouldn't know what to do with them. They would fit all of your qualifications and you wouldn't be able to train them into the thing that you needed them to do. I feel like one of the things that's so interesting about hiring new people is you can say, okay, here's an opportunity for growth. Here's an opportunity for growth. But if you find the exact person that fits every specification, you just expect them to work like a robot and people don't work that way. It's like, you need to have some sort of aspiration for people to work toward. And it, if you do it, base it off of a JD, they're not going to be very satisfied once you get them in the door. Yeah, that's, that is really something to consider. Here's another thing. Uh, I have a friend going back almost 30 years and his entire career has been in car sales. Uh, he is a dynamo out on the floor. He will meet or break any sales goal you set for him. He's just amazing when it comes to sales. Several times he's been promoted into management. And although I know he did find one management role he stayed with for a long time and it actually kind of worked well for him. In every other case, within a week of being in that management role, whether it was the sales manager or the finance manager, were usually the next steps up from the, the sales floor at the car dealership. Within about two weeks, he was asking to be put back on the floor. Now, doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that he just didn't feel like doing the management thing was the alignment of his brilliance and passion. He's one of those people that uh, he is a very, he, it's kind of interesting. He's actually more introverted than me in terms of use of energy for social interactions. But when it comes to interacting with customers and building their trust so that they buy cars from him, I don't know anybody who's better. The point being is you put somebody into management based on their previous performance in a non-managerial role because that's the natural next step in the org chart that isn't the natural next step for that person. And with that being said, let's say somebody is a first-time manager. What needs to happen with that first-time manager to make them a great leader? Yeah, so that's a really common, a really common problem that happens with a lot of organizations, especially if they try to do uh, internal kind of hiring or promoting within. 
um, there's this really great book and I, I reference it in my book as well, but there's a book called uh, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Yeah, yeah, I've read it. Yeah, so the idea is when, when you're an individual contributor or even if you are, let's say, like a, a, somebody who is considered a manager but doesn't have any direct reports, you have a lot of technical skills and that usually your technical abilities, the things that you uh, are able to kind of execute on your role, whether it be, you know, website design or social media management or whatever your, your kind of the hard skills, you can do those really well. And typically those people stand out in the management's eyes because a manager, if you have an employee that's exceeding, you can look and say, wow, they are really good at, you know, whatever, whatever technical things that they're good at. Once you promote those people into a management role where they have to not only work with their managers above them, but they also have to work with people below them. Sometimes it's a training issue, but a lot of times it's those people don't have the social skills or the soft skills to navigate politics within an organization and give kind of the social ability to, and this works for both introverts and extroverts, but people that don't have the ability that, or they think that what they need to do from a technical skill standpoint is the thing that will continue to get them promoted, but really what they need to be doing is focusing less on their technical skills and start building up more of the relationship uh, skill set, the influencing skill set, and more of their kind of their soft skills that they that in order to move up the org chart, each individual function has different soft skills that are required. But that's kind of the transition that a lot of um, first-time managers need to make, and organizations don't tell them that because usually an organization they don't they don't think that linear in terms of like we need to make these changes for these upcoming managers. They just assume they'll figure it out and like the kind of the trial through fire type of thing. Um, but yeah, that's usually the, the, the shift that a lot of first time managers need to make is, is stop paying attention to your technical skills. I mean, you know, obviously do your job, but focus more on the soft skills because those are the things that are going to get you ahead or continue to kind of help you balance your workflow and your team. Yeah, uh, there's a, you know, and when it comes to, you know, this whole thing of introversion versus extroversion, which understanding that, by the way, saved my life, because uh, I, I didn't understand what it was about me until I read Quiet by Susan Cain. Uh, I, recognizing that I really am extremely introverted, people wonder, well, how can I go on stages in front of hundreds of people? Yeah, well, it's easy, because I don't have to actually speak with them afterwards. <laughs> now, uh, now, what I, now, it's actually... I'm not one of those people that necessarily demands that all the green M&Ms be removed and that there be avian water in my green room or something like that. But what I do specify when I'm going to do a speaking engagement is, do you need me to hang around afterwards to do a book signing, to do a meet and greet? What are your expectations about how much more time I'm going to spend in the room? Uh, are we going to have a break afterwards? The reason being is I will have, I will be fired up with energy. I can do an hour and a half presentation extemporaneously fired up energetic powerful and then the meter just when i have to do the meet and greets afterward mm -hmm. so what i want to know in advance is is this going to be a structured thing is this going to be the type of thing where i can take a break and build up some additional energy and then come back and do it uh are you actually looking for me to sort of slip away and just contact people afterward through social media what it is is your expectation i want leads obviously i do yeah. want to meet people because this is about growing my business 
I just want to nail down the parameters for doing it. There's one event that I've spoken at almost 10 times now. It's a, an event that happens almost every year and we'll hopefully be coming back again as soon as we get over this bug. Uh, and the expectation that was put upon me was that I would do the speech and then I would go sit in the audience while the next presenter got up. And I, I couldn't physically do that. So I had to make it clear, the fact that I'm going to step off the stage and immediately walk out of the room and disappear for a half hour is not a reflection on my feelings about you or anybody else in the room. It's about preparing me to do what you really want me to do, which is to be a force for building a community. I need to charge up to do that. No, and that's great self-awareness. I mean, I, it took me a lot, a long time to figure, because I, I always thought that I was super introverted, because I feel like when you're younger, they kind of distort the way that introvert and extrovert are the way that they work. It's more you're like- so shy, you're so quiet. Right. And that was the thing for me was like, it's how you process information. It's how you, like where you get your energy from, how you regroup. How, and so I was, when I was younger, people were like, you don't ever talk, you must be an introvert. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. But yeah, I feel like I feel like the book that you recommended specifically, I think is gonna be really, really helpful for people that haven't, because it took me a long time to figure out um, that I was an extrovert, but I was a not super talkative extrovert. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, very rarely is one an extreme on one side or the other. When you get me around a close circle of people that I feel highly comfortable with, uh, they, they think I'm the most outgoing, effervescent person they've ever met in the world. And then that same group sometimes has to wonder why I won't look up for my computer screen. It's all about where my energy is at the time. Yeah. And if you have time, like what you said, you have the expectation of like, okay, I can regain my energy in this setting or I, you know, I can prepare myself in this setting type of thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think that's really something that leaders need to be aware of. And I wanted to spend a few minutes on that because when you're in a management position, you are, if in order to be effective anyway, in my opinion, you're going to need to establish accessibility, relatability, and you're going to be dealing with multiple different personalities because typically there's one manager and multiple different reports. Uh, I remember that movie Training Day starring Denzel Washington, where he described his uh, team of, of stormtroopers that were part of his uh, narcotics unit as five different sets of problems. Mm -hmm. and, and, when he, and when he offered Officer Hoyt the chance to become his sixth problem, I think that's what he was referring to, is he knew he was dealing with different personalities and he had to find a way to make that work. Yeah, and some people aren't set up to be managers. Like some people, you know, you could be an individual contributor the rest of your career and be completely content with that. <laughs> I know I have some friends who are like, I'm good, you know, just keep giving me pay raises and I don't want to manage people because there's so much of that of like needing to understand personalities and being able to, to manage conflict and deal with people in a way that you're not usually familiar with. There's a lot more responsibility from the social standpoint of being able to say, you know, this person's having a bad day and that will affect my work. Like that type yeah. of kind of logic is hard for people that haven't had to deal with it in the past. So I, yeah, so like kind of for the soft skills that if, if any, if employees or uh, organizations can do anything for first time managers, it's get them the training so that they're able to handle those types of soft skills when it comes to handling conflict, dealing with people's emotions, like all of that stuff is critically important. Otherwise you will see people that fail. Yeah, uh, as I like to say, somebody has to be the clerk. 
somebody has to immerse themselves in the spreadsheets and somebody needs to schmooze with the customers. And it's all based on different people's strengths. Some people exactly. love, you know, some people love being in front of the customer. Some people love being the producer, you know, the person that makes the creative or makes the PowerPoints or, you know, whatever. But yeah, it, it, it goes back to figuring out people's strengths and leveraging them that way. Precisely, precisely. So I think this goes to the next topic that I wanted to cover here is as a leader, it's, it's necessary in many cases to show vulnerability. So what are some effective ways to do that that can be to your advantage? Yeah, um, I am a fan, and I, I assume that you probably are the same way. Uh, Brene Brown, who does a lot of vulnerability and shame researching. Yeah. The biggest thing that employers, employers and managers can do from a vulnerability standpoint is admit that they don't know something. And this has become one of the biggest, the absolute biggest trends with when you're starting to have conversations about diversity and inclusion you have a lot of people in positions who can't necessarily have the same experience of, let's say, um, a black employee or a woman with, you know, a working mother. Like they can't necessarily have those levels of experiences just because that's not their life experience, and they don't. But they but they shy away from having the conversation because they don't want to be vulnerable because they don't want to take the step and be wrong. And I think that's probably the biggest thing with vulnerability is like, yes, it is scary, but there's almost a necessary, a necessity to leaders, especially putting themselves in the line and, and almost outlining what they don't know. Because a lot of people will step forward and they'll pretend, you know, kind of that idea of like fake it till you make it. It's not, not always helpful when it comes to managing people, because the more that you pretend to know something, you kind of undermine or diminish a person's experience which obviously creates a very toxic work environment, especially for the employee that feels undermined or, or ignored or kind of put down. But from a, yeah, from a vulnerability standpoint, I think the biggest thing that people can do is just admit that they don't know something and then ask for help. Ask, you know, if you don't have an experience, this happened with me. Uh, I had an employee who, she, she had a child and was on maternity leave. And when she came back, I was like, listen, I'm not, I don't have kids, I have a dog. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what your experience is. And I was like, so if you need anything, like, please let me know if there's anything that I can do from like educating myself or working with management. Like we had a maternity leave policy that wasn't very good. So I was, you know, helping her. I was kind of like being a champion with her to work internally to change our maternity leave policy so that we could get more time. But there's stuff like that just from a manager standpoint of being able to understand that you don't understand everyone's experiences and then being open enough to say, I'm willing to hear your side of the story. Yeah, uh, I've, the phrase I've heard used to describe this many times is, I'm not so insecure, I can't take good advice. Her, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and, I, and I've seen that before. When I was in college, I had a part-time job in a fast food restaurant. Uh, I've been, there's uh, two stories I tell about this, one frequently, and uh, the second one is gonna be one that I'm gonna share with you for the very first time. I was there long enough that I was able to do any position within within the crew, uh, opening, closing, lunch, dinner, what have you. So one thing I was especially skilled at is doing what was known as the post-rush function that took place after a, a lunch or a dinner rush. So let's focus on the dinner rush. One of the post-rush rules was somebody who did what was known as the offline post-rush, which involved uh, 
dropping all the shortening in the fryers and refilling them, uh, cleaning the back room, taking out the garbage, uh, scrubbing down the grill that was being shut down, and a number of other things. Also, pulling product from the outside freezer to the inside freezer. I Just a whole list of things. So there was that, and then there was also a pre-close that functioned that involved actually some of those same tasks, believe it or not. So when most people did the post rush, the first thing they would do is they would immediately run to the garbage cans and take them out. And, uh, and I'm going to prelude my second point by saying every so often we'd get some trainee who would get really, really ridden up in their shorts if you uh, didn't rush to take the garbage out first. But here's what I figured out. Because at the same time they were doing line pre-closed, which meant restocking everything on the service line after a very busy period. And the dining room was in the, it was in the place where a lot of the people who had come in for dinner were just getting up to leave. In both places, a lot of garbage was being generated. In fact, I calculated roughly that a quarter of the entire waste for the entire day was generated between 7 o'clock and 7.30 in the evening. So what I did at 7 o'clock is I got my tamper and I pushed the garbage down so that the cans were now half full without me taking it out. In the meantime, I dropped all the fryers so that I could circle back to them in 10 minutes once they had a chance to cool down. I swept out the back room and uh, pulled the supplies from outside and everything else. And then once everybody else had a chance to get all their garbage in, then I took the garbage out. So at the end of the night, when it closed at 11 o'clock, there would be, after I did post rush, one and a half trash cans full of garbage, as opposed to all four of them overflowing. This impacted the morning opening shift because they would generate at least two garbage cans full of, of waste just through the prep process. So now they're not climbing over overfilled garbage cans and they have empties to start with. Then I figured out how to combine the post rush into pre-close so I could get the whole thing. This is something that was a, uh, specified to take two hours i could get it done in an hour and 15 minutes and somebody could check it and they could say yeah not only did i do everything that's on your little checklist but i did a even a few of those things that all your other post rushers just never seem to do like pull out the fryers and sweep behind them things like that for sanitary reasons that never got done but i did them uh and and the general manager of the store got wind that i was efficient like this and rather than criticize it, he celebrated it. Because if I could do two hours of work in an hour and 15 minutes, they could send home one of those teenagers who really just wanted to get cut early so they could go to a party. Everybody wins. So they save on labor costs besides, because they can cut somebody who doesn't even really want to be there that long. And that reflects in their profitability margins. So now, forward this to the fact that the store that I worked at was also a designated training store, which means every management trainee from the entire district did their management training in that store. Now, some of them were just so devoted to looking at some book, which actually the book did not say you take the trash out first, but they got convinced that that was how it was supposed to be. And they would have fits like, you're not following the rules. You don't know what you're doing. You need to do it in this order. <laughs> and these are the ones who tended to wash out or only got certified as managers because they were desperate for a body in some other store. The ones that I saw over time go on to 
get promoted to co-managers and even within my five years there as general managers in other stores were the ones who were willing to ask questions why are you doing it that way um okay did, did you really get this done how does that work how do you manage to accomplish this so to me it was that latter group that was able to show some vulnerability and saying yeah i recognize i'm a trainee i don't i'm not necessarily trying to prove that i'm better than you i want i'm looking for your help to make me a better manager because i want to succeed in this role in the long term and to me those are the that's what you look for and that's what you want to celebrate in an organization and facilitate having an organization that allows that to happen I, yeah, no, I think that's a really, really great story. It reminded me of, I, I read a Harvard, a Harvard Business Review article the other day that kind of was like, it felt a little clickbaity, but it, the title of it was, you're too successful to, or you're too successful to start over. And the idea was people who, you know, have, think that they're at the top or think that they are, you know, not worth learning more, uh, can't teach old dog new tricks type of people they, once they get to a certain level, they're no longer able to go down or work with people from a lower range because they have this mentality that they don't need to learn anything. And yeah. the idea is you, you're always constantly learning. So the idea, this, the article, the Harvard Business Review article was talking about an executive who had gotten all the way to the top at this really big company, went to do a startup and failed. And they did a, it was kind of a case study as to why this guy failed. And their conclusion was because he felt like he was too good and felt like he knew everything when really the skill sets that he needed to learn, he was unwilling or, you know, not vulnerable enough to put himself out there and say, I need to learn more in order to be successful. Wow. Yeah. So we're almost at the top here. Uh, we have two things, one of which is I'm going to give you the four for a minute. Before we do that, the checklist leaders need to have to build trust within their teams, what we've been building up to. Lay it out for us. Yes. So... The big thing, and I'll go over, I'll go over the intro quickly and then I'll talk about the list. So yeah. the intro is Google did a study or they did kind of an internal optimization thing as Google does. Uh, they studied teams and they were trying to figure out what were the characteristics or what were the components that made teams most successful. Long story short, after a multi-million dollar investment in this internal study, they found that trust, the, the T word, was the thing that teams, the teams that had more trust among each other were the teams that outperformed or overperformed, over exceeded the expectations or their margins or their data that they were supposed, or I guess their, um, their indicators, their leading and lagging indicators. So trust, based on what Google's research was, they said all teams in order to be extremely successful need to be able to develop trust and the way that you do that is through small incremental back and forth. So it's almost exponential in the way that you develop trust. And the thing right. that's interesting is when you talk to a lot of people about building trust, they don't know what that means because it's something that you do naturally. It's not something you typically do in a very formal setting. Like if we were like, hey, let's build trust. It's, you know, you could do a trust fall and maybe that would work. But typically you need to start with smaller things. And so the list that I have, it's, I have it also in the book. Um, but things like communicating any updates on project deadlines early, uh, keeping commitments, that is showing up on time, being present in the meetings, not checking your phones, standing up for a colleague if something doesn't seem right or if you hear something that doesn't seem right, listen respectfully without judgment, acting with integrity, telling the truth. That's the huge thing. A lot of managers sometimes be like, oh, I can, I can tell my team 
something that keeps them quiet for now, but isn't necessarily truthful. That type of stuff erodes trust in the long run and it's not good. Um, owning up to your mistakes, which goes back to that idea of vulnerability, um, avoiding gossiping, doing what you say and saying what you mean. There's, those are just a few of the things that are on the list, but, but it basically goes down to do the little things right and you'll start to see that your trust among your team goes up. I love that part. Start with the little things if, uh, if you're trying to find your way and begin getting those singles and then build up your batting average. I love that. That's fantastic. So we are actually right at the top of the hour here. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to turn over the stage to you for just one more moment. Somebody who's leaning in and wants to do more work on how to uh, build trust with their work team. We never really got to the when to take trust away. So maybe we'll have you back for a follow-up on this at some point. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I think we, I think our listeners still got so much out of this that it will be an amazing experience for them. And they can probably fill in some of the blanks in terms of when to withdraw the trust. And I also would imagine that's covered in your book. But tell us about how they can contact you, how you serve business creators and uh, where they can get your book because I think it's a really good read. Yeah, yeah. So um, you can reach me at benjaminpreston.com. That's my website. Yep. has all of my information if uh, people are interested in meeting with me one-on-one -on -one or if they want me to work with them from an organizational standpoint. Um, I cover a lot of different verticals in terms of operations, human resources, marketing is actually my background. Um, so yeah, any of those I'm happy to help. I do uh, presentations with organizations all the time, like different kind of workshop facilitation type things. Um, but yes, everything that we talked about today is covered in my book, Harness Your Butterflies. Uh, it's available on Amazon. If you go to Harness Your Butterflies, um, it should be there along with dog harnesses for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, or you can find it on my website, benjaminpreston.com and then backlink or slash book. That's all yeah. there. Yeah, I, actually, I can see it on benjaminpreston.com forward slash book. And I see that just in some of the bullet points, uh, like how to deal with quarter life crises and power questions that can help bifurcate this process and also identifying weaknesses and focusing them into strengths. I think these are really great points that will allow the end user to take this to another level. And I encourage everybody to get a hold of you because I think you have a lot to contribute to this area of work and you can be a benefit to folks. So Benjamin Preston, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me in education. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.